When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And all the little details, I mean, I will feel bad for ordering a frozen drink. No, yeah, no. I felt really called out. I did. I, 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 as someone who used to drink daiquiris. <laughs> Hey, Disha. Hey, Donnie. And welcome, everyone, to Ursa Short Fiction, where we geek out on our favorite short stories and writers. I'm Donnie Walton, author of The Final Revival of Opal and Nev. And I'm Disha Filia, author of The Secret Lives of Church Ladies. As always, if you want to support this show, you can share this podcast with your friends or support us directly by becoming an Ursa member at ursastory.com slash join. You'll get bonus episodes and you'll help us keep producing this show with audio stories that you can read on your phone or listen to right here in your favorite podcast app. Now, today is an extra special treat. The three D's of Duval are officially reunited. We are so thrilled to welcome Don Teal W. Moniz, native of Jacksonville and author of the outstanding 2021 collection, Milk, Blood, Heat. Hey, y'all. Hey. Hey. (laughs) Now, a little bit about Don Teal. Don Teal W. Moniz is the recipient of a National Book Foundation 5 Under 35 Award, a Pushcart Prize, a McDowell Fellowship, and the Alice Hoffman Prize for Fiction. Her debut collection, Milk, Blood, Heat, is the winner of a Florida Book Award and was a finalist for the Penn Jean Stein Award, the Penn Robert W. Bingham Prize, and the New York Public Library Young Lions Fiction Award, as well as longlisted for the Dylan Thomas Prize. Her writing has appeared in the Paris Review, Harper's Bazaar, American Short Fiction, Tin House, and elsewhere. Moniz is an assistant professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where she teaches fiction. Don Teal, you're here! <laughs> Yay! I'm so glad we all got to do God, we have been looking forward to this so much. And we have all joked about this before, about our Jacksonville roots, about there being something special and magical in the St. John's River. But I'm not (laughs) sure we actually discussed specifically, and I want to ask you both, was there something about growing up in Jacksonville that molded or influenced you as a writer or shaped your particular perspective? Yeah, I don't know about y'all, but I'm thinking about how we can never separate ourselves from the places that we grow, right? Where we grow from. Nobody is creating art in a vacuum as much as people would like you to believe that, you know what I mean? Like this Mm -hmm. this genius is, oh, all for me. It's, It's nothing is happening in a vacuum. So I think definitely my environment shaped me. But when I really think about it, it was like, it it all goes back to my mom. You know, my mom was somebody who read to me a lot, um, got me reading and writing very early, and then also supported me when I started gravitating towards those things on my own. So I don't know, I'm always thinking about nature or nurture, but I think it's, I think it's both. Yeah. Yeah. What about you, Disha? You know, it's a strange relationship that I have with Jacksonville in that Mm -hmm. I don't, 
miss living there and I don't think uh-huh. I'd live there again. <laughs> and yet, and yet when I s- started, you know, writing 20 years ago, I was just, you know, full of this nostalgia and memories of growing up in Jacksonville. And so I don't know that it's unique to Jacksonville or just that, you know, my, my upbringing in, in the ways that I was raised, um, raised by black women, raised in and out of the church, you know, so there was, there were all of those elements, but then also culturally, you know, the food, the heat, mm, yeah, the way we talk, um, what did we, Donnie and I, I think we're talking about this once that in, in from Duval, if you're from Duval, you got to know how to fight, you know, how got to know how to shoot and you know how to drink and <laughs> I don't really know how to do any of those things particularly well, but, you know, just sort of those sort of forces that shaped us. But then I think at the same time, um, as we've discussed, in a way, we all grew up in kind of like three different Jacksonvilles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Because of our age gaps. Yeah. Right. And, the, you know, what side of town we grew up on. And so, you and know, Jacksonville is huge. For those of y'all yes. that don't know, it's a huge place land wise. Yeah. yeah. Isn't it like the biggest geographical area? It in is. The US? Yeah. That's it's yeah. the third largest uh, city in the contiguous United States. Yeah. 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 And that's a little fun fact that I pull out all the time when people ask me what Jacksonville was like. Well, you know, it's a like, lot. Yeah, I know. It's a lot. <laughs> and so, you know, so all of those um, aspects of my um, upbringing and my, the first 18 years of my life, because I left when I was 18, um, it, they show up in my stories all the time, even though I've lived elsewhere longer than I've lived wow. Jacksonville. It's still those voices that come to me first. Um, I'm looking at fiction that I'm writing now and I'm like, I'm not relating to it in the same way. And it's because I'm writing about people who don't live in the South. And that is so weird for me. Mm-hmm. What about you, Donnie? Well, I was trying to think about this and I think that it, it definitely is, you know, having gone to honestly a high school that like I had such great English teachers yes. and really, I mean, we had papers to write every week at Stanton, Stanton college prep. Um, Disha's also an alum. Um, we were there five years apart, but having to really like think deeply about writing, um, and doing so once a week for Dr. Renfro mm-hmm. <laughs> English classes, <laughs> that's something. And then I also think there's something about Jacksonville. It's very hard to describe. Don't mm-hmm. you think? Yes, like, absolutely. You know, you think about other areas in Florida, you know, Orlando is Disney World. Disney World. You got a shorthand for a lot of those other places. Miami. Miami Miami and South Beach, you know, Mm -hmm. like all of these things. But like, you have to think a little bit deeper when you're from Jacksonville. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like your, your perspective is a little bit skewed. And I think there's, there's something in that, but I really feel Jacksonville so much in both of your books and Don Teal, you know, rereading milk blood. He, um, this past week, I just was transported back to like, you know, retention ponds and like playing (laughs) as, as kids and like this kind of like these weird, like, like nature areas and mm-hmm. and like the heat, the quality of the heat and the intensity of friendships and the cousin bond is mm-hmm. something yeah. I also related mm-hmm. to very much. But I'd love to talk about there, you know, there's one story, the title story that sets the table. Yeah. Um, Milk Blood Heat. The sort of description of the hotel downtown and the rooftop and the views and the blue bridge, which I totally have yes. ridden across that Main Street Bridge many times. <laughs> 
But that story was such a gut punch for me. Spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't read, read the collection and then come back to this podcast. But when Kira slips off that hotel rooftop, I don't know that there was a more shocking mm-hmm. moment for me that I've ever experienced mm-hmm. in, in fiction. And so I'm just curious about, you know, the inspiration for that story. And if when you started writing the story, you knew that was going to happen or were you surprised as well? So I think for that story in particular, you know, I remember there's a certain kind of like heaviness I sometimes experienced as a child where I was trying to figure out like all of these kind of deeper, darker like questions or images would come to me. And it never felt like I had any space to say them to somebody, especially not the adults in my life, because, you know, it was always like, oh, you're a child. Life is easy for you. You know what I mean? There's, there's no reason you need to be thinking about any of these kind of things, but the, you know, it's like one of those things that comes up, I think in parenting, I'm not a parent, so I don't know, but I hear this from parents. It's like, you know, if if a child is old enough to be asking about things, it might be, they might be Mm -hmm. old enough for you to have that Mm -hmm. conversation with them. And it's like actually more beneficial to everybody to have those conversations when those questions are coming up. But um, so there's just kind of this way in which it felt like, especially as a girl growing up, that I wasn't supposed to be having these kind of darker feelings or thoughts or that somehow, you know, it was something weird or strange. And so I was just thinking about that quality of childhood sometimes um, and girlhood in particular, right? You're like, mm-hmm. you're getting ready to, you know, especially if you're going through puberty and you get this period, then all of a sudden you're responsible for like, you could bring life into this world. You know what I mean? And then Mm -hmm. like having a period and how messy and kind of violent it can be. So for that moment too, and it's not even that, you know, she slips from the roof, she jumps. Yeah, that's right. And I think that's, that's the thing for me is like, it's one thing to have these questions. It's one thing to like, have like imaginations about what a thing could be like, but then to actually move forward in action is this other thing. So I think I was, I don't know if I knew that she was going to actually jump. I knew it was going to be a story where these two girls were kind of in this relationship where they had the freedom to talk about these things with one another. But then at some point, like early in the draft, I was like, oh no, I think she actually does it. And I think that's the thing I'm trying to think about. Like what happens when you go from imagining to doing? Mm. So I remember exactly where I was the first time I read Milk Blood Heat, um, the title story. I was in the bathtub and I was so stunned at that moment that I texted Don Teal and (laughs) I don't remember what I wrote, but I don't know. My goodness, that moment just shook me all the way back to my own girlhood and into thoughts of my daughters when they were that age and, and just sort of the fragility um, that, that we experience. Um, And then as I continue to read the other stories in the book, there were more memories that were evoked and more moments. And so I'm wondering, you talked about remembering, you know, your own experiences of of girlhood and, and having certain thoughts just in general for the collection as a whole, how much did you lean into memory and nostalgia? And are you comfortable in that space? Because I know some writers do want to feel like their stories, you know, are so separate from them. Yeah. I think that's a really good question. And it's something I, I, I think I've been thinking about a lot more lately. Like you think about like auto fiction, that term gets thrown around so much and like kind of like in a condescending like way. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, it's auto fiction. You know what I mean? Like I, I believe the quote was one little husks of auto f- fiction. Can we not? Oh my God. We don't even have to talk about her. Carry um, on, carry on. I just I just I love the phrase, honestly. One but go little ahead. Husk. Yeah. So like, you know, it is. It it seems like that. You're like, oh, you're just taking something that happened and transporting it, but really no matter what you're 
you're writing, whether you're writing fiction or nonfiction, all of the things that you're putting down on the page come from you, are of you, are formed by your own thinking and life experiences, right? Yeah. Even if you are writing a character whose life looks completely different than your life, it's still in ways informed by you because it's coming from you and whatever questions or curiosities you're trying to explore through storytelling, right? Um, and so I think that, I think because this book is so focused on my hometown, um, I think there are places in the book where it's like, yeah, this comes from this memory or this experience that I had, but it's, it's always as a seed or a starting off point mm -hmm. because the story is the thing that allows me to get past what actually happened or what I think actually happened and then explore mm. what could have happened. What would it have been like if, and then I can get deeper into things that I maybe experienced that I'm like, Oh, I would never have come to that with just that experience on its own. So like, for example, the story outside the raft with the two cousins, mm -hmm. Yeah, that actually is a thing that happened to my cousin and I, where we went to the beach and we almost drowned. Um, but like all of the stuff around that is still, I always think of fiction as like, um, telling the truth by lying. And sometimes mm -hmm. you're telling the truth of something that happened, but in a way that helps you get deeper, even if it's not exactly what happened because I, I had places where like my mom called me one time she goes that never happened like that I was like I know mom it's fiction I was like it's, it's okay it's all right we're okay like no one's putting your name on this stuff yeah yeah I love that having having your experience be sort of a starting point and then going into what if from there and we, we talked a lot about what if being mm -hmm. good generative material so this is a collection that is just packed with bold girls and surprising women and thorny mother-daughter relationships. And so many of your characters feel larger than life to me. And actually, I am teaching tongues shortly ah! um, for a character who I feel is larger than life, Zay, the, yes. the, the main character of that story. But also, you know, the, I love how you describe the girls in Milk blood heat as monstrous i'm just curious your philosophies about building characters how you know they're working how you know they're popping off the page so it's really interesting to me and it's not a thing that i had to think about until i published the book and i think that might be the case for most writers you don't really have to like think about your own mm -hmm. process of creativity until people start asking you about it You're like oh shit <laughs> I, have to, I have to understand how to tell this to you because it was surprising for me to find out that character is usually not the first thing that comes to me usually it'll be like maybe an image maybe an idea or a bit of dialogue or like some sort of like relationship between two characters even if i don't know who those characters are but for Zay, it kind of was like, so my mom was telling me this story about one of her friends who her daughter and this other girl in, that she was in class with got into kind of a disagreement in the class. But what happened was the parents of the other girl came to the school. They like pretended to be the girl's parents and the office like let them go back there. <laughs> and then they like took this girl out of class and started yelling her, these, these grown people to this, you know, this child that their daughter had had a confrontation with. And so wow. I kind of, I, I heard that and I was kind of like, I am so interested and the type of a person that would do that. And I had already kind of been working with these seeds of language um, with the word luciferous, which I had never encountered before, but the prefix is Lucifer. And, you know, obviously we have all these ideas about the devil and the fact that that word meant light and like mm -hmm. enlightenment was something mm -hmm. that was strange. So somehow those two things came together and then Zay was born out of that. I was like, what would it be like for you to be a person who only had so many resources to protect the people that you love? 
Um, and then you use those resources, even if from the outside, it would be like, Hey, let's not do that thing that you just did. But in your mind, you know what I mean? That's the right move to do to protect somebody that you love. Zay just kind of came out of that. And is Zay your favorite character or do you have a favorite character from the collection? I wouldn't, it's so hard to pick favorites. Like I know like in real life, like people, even if they say they don't, like they have a favorite, (laughs) you know, somebody, but, um, I feel like I think about Zay, but I also think about Cecilia a lot from Thicker Than Water. Mm. Yeah, just because of the nature of wanting and wishing for relationships to be in repair, but that doesn't always happen, even when you're willing, right? It's like both parties have to be willing. And maybe sometimes so much has happened that you can't kind of get past the things that have happened to you. Yeah, Yeah. there's so much simmering under the surface of that story and of that character. I feel like I could read so much more about Cecilia. Yeah, And still talking about tongues, and I can't believe I haven't asked you this before, given the ways that our collections are in conversation with each other. Did your relationship with the Black church, if any, did it influence um, the origin of that story or the story at all? I think religion in general did because, you know, I had a couple of different um, intersections with different religions. Like my uh, sister's father was Muslim. Uh, My grandmother's Jehovah's Witness. Most of my family was Black Baptist. It was like being around all these different religions and being like each one of them being like, this is the right one. And it's like, ah, I'm seeing a lot of overlap and intersection. And I'm also seeing sometimes in different ways, the hypocrisy of saying to act one way and then actually doing another over here on the side. And then I started to notice in particular the ways that religions um, sometimes was trying to confine what the female experience was or what you had to be in order to be good. And that was the things that kind of, I felt like, you know, that, that's a little duplicitous. And, mm-hmm. and, I, and, you know, those kinds of seeds in my head. But for the most part, I think my mom, like when I got like 16, she started asking me if I wanted to go to church, which is like, I think wild for black, black households. I think really wild. And then I said no. And I remember her being like, okay. And then she never forced me. But like some years later, I remember her saying, I wish I had like made you go to church with me. I was like, why are you disappointed with like, <laughs> are you upset with how I came out? She's like, no, I just feel like I should have. And I was like, I'm okay. I'm finding my own like spirituality. Yeah. But yeah, I think I was shocked when she when she gave me a choice because I'm like, choice is not usually the thing. There. Yeah, and what a beautiful like moment of like respecting your mind as a young person, and that's that's great that she gave you that yeah. choice. And I don't know where a lot it came of people from. No. Yeah. <laughs> Is there a, so we're talking about tongues and, you know, when I was looking at the notes, you know, Donnie's first question was about tongues and that was my first question. Is there a story in the collection you wish interviewers would ask you about more often? You know, exotics is the story that people kind of don't touch. It's kind of like the hands off story of the collection, because I think some people that by the time they get to that story, they're like, I just don't understand like what that story is doing in this collection. It's like different and shorter. And, you know, it's, it's in the first person plural and Mm -hmm. all of these things. But I think of that story as being like, it's doing everything the story collection is doing as a whole, but like on a more literal stage. And because it's so literal, it makes it feel like the most surreal story I think in the entire collection. But you know, that's the one that usually people be like, they, she just must've put this in here because she didn't know what else to do. And I'm like, no, (laughs) it's in their own purpose. Like, you know, I think it connects with everything that's going on. And I love hearing you read exotics. I love that. 
Yeah, I just think too, and it's one of those stories too that is not super neat that you have to be paying attention because mm-hmm. some people even miss the thing that happens. And I'm just kind of like, no, no, go back and close read. So since we're doing spoilers, you can tell our listeners the thing that happens. Just maybe yeah. kind of tee up what exotics is. Mm-hmm. So basically, exotics takes place in this like exclusive supper club. Because one of the things that I think about daily is like we actually don't know what like the one percent is getting up to. Like we actually don't know and have no idea about what kind of lives these people lead. Only that we know that just by the basis of fact that they're interested in like hoarding resources and like you know experiences for themselves so it's this exclusive supper club where these workers are kind of every month they prepare something exotic for these um these people uh like i don't know eating lion or like ortolan or anything like that and at the very end these these guests these really rich people are kind of like oh we want to eat something really exclusive and really special and in the end they they end up eating like a, a child which everybody was like oh my god cannibalism like how can we do this but it's also <laughs> a metaphor like i feel like in our society we're kind of always cannibalizing youth we mm-hmm. use it to sell and we use it to scapegoat all the time and by the time you are finished being young i feel like the society does not prepare you for anything past youth and so that embitters a lot of people. And then instead of like helping the youth that come after us, we're like bent on being like, no, 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 we have to keep things the way this is. And, you know, the ways that I know, instead of like being right. open to change and like helping the next generation also, because the next generation is a generation that will be here, mm-hmm. you know, once we're gone. So yeah. it's kind of doing all of those things. Yeah. Like this sense of I went through it, I suffered through it. So you should too. Oh my God. Is, yes. Yeah. Which obviously a perfect example of right that right now is like what's happening with the student yeah. Student debt relief. It's like, Mm -hmm. I paid mine. I did that. I know. (laughs) It's like, okay, was that easy for you? Was it awful? Like, why would you want somebody else to do that? Like, we don't care about each other, but that's a whole other rant, you know? Is it that? I think it's the same rant. Yeah. 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 Good point. And and why it belongs in in the collection. Yeah. Okay, so now you are teaching at your alma mater. I am. Wow. Yes, yes. And so I know when, when I'm teaching, there are certain things that I harp on as a teacher to my students. And I'm curious, what is it that you stress, that you find yourself stressing the most to, to those young people who are coming after you about craft or anything really about writing, publishing, Yeah, I think for the biggest, biggest thing, no matter if I'm teaching undergrads or graduates, is like to understand that any writing rules, they're not rules, they're conventions. They are starting points for you to understand and get your foothold and try to find your voice and your own aesthetic. But if anybody is sitting here telling you like straight up, you have to write like this or you should be doing X, Y, and Z, it's like always take that with a little bit of side eye, a little bit of salt. You know what I mean? Because it's like, Mm -hmm. okay, that's the thing that works for you and your process. Now I need to figure out, maybe I can adapt that thing to make it work for my process or maybe it doesn't work for my process at all. But I, that's the first thing I teach is that rules are actually just conventions as starting points. You got to figure it out. I mean, it's good to know what those conventions are mm-hmm. so you can get your foothold, but that doesn't mean that you have to do it this one way. If it's not what your process um, needs. And then the other thing is to figure out if you're feeling fear or resistance, or you're feeling like, Oh, I need to do X, Y, and Z. Is that something that is coming from you? Is that something internal or is it mm. something external that you have internalized 
And now it's like kind of gumming up your own process of self-discovery. So those are the two big things that I try to teach in no matter what I'm teaching. And, you know, we talk on this podcast um, sometimes about the business of writing and that Mm. business includes the MFA program experience. Yeah. Specifically, do you have advice for writers who are either considering getting an MFA or for those who are finishing up the MFA and who are looking ahead? Absolutely. I think that, so this program that I'm currently teaching in and that I also attended did a really good job, I think, of balancing the time for you to fail and discover and actually experiment and without fear. Like that's what the MFA in its in its best iteration is. It's a bubble. It's insulation for you to kind of fuck around and find out is how I mm-hmm. like to, you know, to say that without feeling like, oh, I'm a failure or these things are all, you know, pressurized or at risk. But I also think that the balance of having that time to focus on the work, but then also here we're going to illuminate some of the ways the business stuff works was really good because some programs don't do it at all. And I think that that's kind of a disservice to the students because once they leave your two or three year program, and if they want to still like publish a book or do, you know, do writing as like what they do to make money, it's kind of like, okay, then they need to know about fellowships and cover letters and like how the money actually works and like what advances are and like how that actually gets paid out. Mm -hmm. So, um, the balance of that is like knowing enough that you don't have the fear of the unknown, but not obsessing over it to the point that it, that it stalls you from doing your work. So if anybody's thinking of getting an MFA, I think I tell people to think really solidly about what environments do you work best in like larger cohorts, larger, think about the cities, the weather there, all that kind of stuff is going to affect your ability to fully participate in the program while you're there. And when, what was the time between when you finished your MFA program and when your collection came out? So I graduated in 2018 and over that year I had gotten an Elizabeth George foundation grant. So I had $30,000 for the year after I graduated to kind of just sit and with the support of my husband, by the way, cause $30,000 ain't like a ton, a ton of money, but like you can make it stretch mm-hmm. in a year if you have like other things kind of going on. And so I finished the first draft of the book, I want to say January, 2019. And then we sold it in February. Okay. So for me, it was a little less than a year um, after I graduated. Okay. And I've heard you talk in interviews about the time that you worked in service, the service industry before you got into your MFA program. And I remember reading, um, there's an essay that I really like about writing called um, The Getaway Car by Mm -hmm. Ann Patchett. And she talks about her years of waitressing and sort of how it was that they were such a gift to her for being a writer, Um, not only observing people, but just the time, like the time that she sort of had in between things. Like it was like being very busy and like going back and forth to the kitchen, but also just being able to think very deeply about her work at the same time she was doing that. And I'm sort of wondering how your time in the service industry helped you as a writer. Um, if it gave you kind of a different perspective. I think it abs- that absolutely resonates what she said because it's so wild that like, I mean, obviously like we're all people, but the way that people forget that you are a person when you are serving them mm-hmm. is really interesting. Like not even just like they're not even aware of you while you're talking, you know, while they're there and they're having their really private conversations in front of you. It's not even like that. It's like when I was a bartender, people would tell me stuff that I was like, we don't even know each other. Why are you telling me that? You know what I mean? Like, and there's just something about that that allows people to be like, oh, you know what? I can tell you this thing. And so like I collected 
so many stories are like, cause that's one of the things, that's why I write. I'm so interested in people. Like, why are we the way we are? And I'm like, just fascinated sometimes by our behavior. And so like, that was like a prime place. And there's actually a couple stories in the books that are set mm. in restaurants. Yeah. I, have a, I have a whole other project that I want to do. That's like really getting deep and down into like what it is to, to have those interpersonal relationships in restaurant settings between managers and servers and, you know, all this kind of stuff. But, um, for me, it was like, it was good to have that kind of busy space, but that kind of job is a job that you don't take home with you. So like when I was home, when I wasn't like tired from the doubles and stuff, but like I, it still allowed me like two days a week at least that I could fully write um, and kind of process. Yeah. Yeah. I loved the loss of heaven by the Mm -hmm. way. And sort of the, the imagining, you know, what a customer's life is like outside of that bar setting outside of that little bit of time. Yeah. And, but how he brings a lot of his turmoil and a lot of his grief to that bar and tries to lose it in the bar, but I just found it so layered and beautiful and also upsetting. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, I I was sad for Fred. I also wanted to smack Fred. It was like, I feel like all the things. When he grabs her arm, I'm like, bro, what are you doing? Like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think I'm really interested in transactional relationships because of how much time I spent in restaurants where I had regulars. I had people I saw like every week, sometimes a couple times a week, but it was really like, I know you as this person sitting in this chair Mm -hmm. and like really nothing else. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Snow was another one where we spend that shift, Mm -hmm. you know, with Trinity and there were, you know, everything felt like there was just such a tension, just brimming, brimming, brimming beneath that, that I just really, you know, was noticing from a craft level, you know, how you did that with that story. Yeah. And all the little details. I mean, I will feel bad for ordering a frozen drink. No, <laughs> yeah, no, I felt no. really called out. I did. I, 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 as someone who used to drink daiquiris. <laughs> Listen, not the classic daiquiris. Listen, you, everybody has to do you, but I'm just letting you know the conversation behind the bar when those tickets comes in is like, oh my God. Uh. <laughs> well, I haven't ordered a frozen daiquiri in many, many, many years. I have moved on to classic daiquiris now, I will say. Love yes. that. Love that for you. <laughs> <laughs> In addition to such wonderful characters, this is a collection that is full of just beautiful sentences. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. I mean, you know, if I open, if if I wrote in books, which I don't, because <laughs> it, it would just yeah. be just like underline after mm-hmm. underline. And I'm curious, what's the best sentence you think you've ever written? Ugh. I knew, see, listen, this is why I got my notepad. Cause I was like, <laughs> I had these on the spot questions. So what I, what I wrote down was it's really hard because I am, I'm first of all, thank you for the compliment about the sentences. I am a sentences person. So when people are like the sentences, I'm like, thank you. I really tried. That was what I, that's what I'm attuned to. But I think, um, okay, so I'm going I'm to preface this by saying, I think as writers, we do not have to always be like, oh yeah, I'm so like, my writing is only okay. Ugh. Like if you think you're doing well and you know you're doing what you're doing, own it. So that's, yes. that's one thing. We don't have to Absolutely. be like self-effacing no. all the time about our nope. writing. So I'm going to preface that saying that. The other thing is I will say that I think I wrote a lot of good sentences in this book. So it's like hard for me to take like one sentence, but I really, really loved. And I think a lot about the last paragraph of milk, blood, heat, 
Like for Mm -hmm. me, um, just like the way that that story builds up and the way that I was trying to do things with callbacks in terms of language and the blood repeating in the milk and that moment between Ava and her friend's mother at the very end, Kira's mother, um, all of the sentences in there, I felt like we're doing exactly the thing that they needed to do to build that tension and that final release in that last, in that last paragraph. So I think that's like my favorite paragraph in the book. And you know, Dantiel, when we were at the Miami book fair and we were doing Q and a, you said something that I, that really stuck with me because I don't, people don't typically say this. We all, the the conventional wisdom is, you know, write the draft. Don't worry about, you know, all of those things. And then when your draft is done, you come back and you make it beautiful. And you were like, nah, I I, I go sentence by sentence and I make those each sentence beautiful. (laughs) And so can you talk a little bit about that process? Yeah. And so, um, that's the thing, by the way, that's different between one of the things that's different between writing short stories and writing novels is in a short story, you Mm -hmm. can do that. I can go sentence by sentence really easily because they're shorter and you can hold them all in your head. Uh, It's very much harder to do that with a novel. Um, you can't start. So what I usually do when I'm writing a draft is, um, I write until whatever I'm writing for the day. The very next time I come back to write it, I start at the very beginning. I start at the top and I kind of edit for rhythm, edit for um, clarity and sound. Um, Sound and rhythm are very important to me in constructing Mm -hmm. a sentence. I think that what a sentence sounds like is as important as what it means or what you're trying to convey. So um, I'm always reading out loud to myself. So I start at the top and then I, you know, do my little editing that I'm doing. And then I get back to where I was and I keep going, which allows me to get back into the story in a way. Um, but again, it's really hard to do that with a novel. You can't have like 60,000 words and like, I'm going to start at the top because you'll, you'll, never, you'll never finish the book, <laughs> which I haven't <laughs> finished mine yet. So that's, that's telling you something. But yeah, so that's what my process is. I kind of am thinking about what does this sentence sound like? Is the rhythm right? For myself, I don't know what other people's inner voice sounds like and how they'll read it. But I feel like generally, if I get that solid with myself, I find that it's solid with other people as well outside of me. Yeah. Do you find, I mean, I I sort of relate to that process as well as someone who's constantly kind of self-editing for Mm -hmm. those things. Rhythm is important to me as well. How long does it typically take you to complete a draft? And are you able to even do the messy first draft? Because I'm definitely, I can't do the messy first draft. Yeah, honestly, by the time I get to the end of a first draft, really, you could think of it as like a one point two or like one point whatever draft because it's been edited kind of until I get to the end and then I go back and over it. So in that way, I think it takes me sometimes a little longer to do a first draft, but I don't know. See, some stories I'm like, oh, they click and I can write it. And then within like a week, I've got a first draft of story. Other stories, it's like, okay, two months, three months of like needing to step away from it. So some of that, some of the time it takes me to write a first draft is incubation. And it's like different depending Mm -hmm. on how, how enmeshed the ideas are in my head. So Mm -hmm. that's a really hard question for me to answer. But yeah, I do think that by the time I get to the first draft, my first drafts are probably a little bit cleaner than some other people who just do the, like, I'm going to do the word vomit thing on the page, which if that works, that's so great. But like for me, I'm like, Oh God, if I had that, I'd be like, Ooh, what do I even do? Where do I start? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you gave us a little clue that you are working on a novel. And I know short story collection writers get asked this all the time, which makes uh-huh. us roll our eyes. Well, what about a novel? I was, so for me, as like, I was actually, the novel was my first book. The novel is the thing that I came to get an MFA for in the first place, just because I have been trying to write it on my own for a really long time. And at some point in like 2015, I was like, 
oh, I need guidance without understanding that I also needed time and money. Mm-hmm, right. <laughs> like I was like, oh, <laughs> it's not just somebody to tell me, blah, blah, blah. I was like, I also need some time where I'm not working 12 hour shifts, mm-hmm. like five days a week. And also like somebody to give me some money so I can just focus on my craft. So, um, and I did finish a first draft of that in my last year of my MFA, but that idea has evolved and I've grown so much as a writer that every time you do that, it's like, great, growth is so great. But then it's like, oh shit, now I got to make my work kind of level up with the growth that I've experienced in my craft. So yes, I am working on it. I'm in a second draft. I'm like deep into a second draft. So we're coming, we're coming closely to the end of this next draft. So yeah, we'll see. Oh, I can't wait. And what do you think that putting together this collection, having it out in the world, has it taught you something that is helping you with the novel? Yeah, I think that um, it, what it taught me is that there will always be more. I think a lot of us, when we're writing, we fall into these ideas of scarcity, even if, we, even if unconsciously of just like, oh, this is the only idea I will ever have and there will be no more if I use all of it, you know, oh, I'm done, I'm stale, you know, whatever it is. And I think what it taught me is that um, there will be more. Even if mm-hmm. like we have to allow ourselves to have fallow periods, to have rest, to allow ourselves to refill the well, so to speak. But um, I think also too, there's a lot of pressure on the debut mm-hmm. book. I think uh-huh. that so many, like internally, externally, like I even, I remember being in conversations with one editor while I was waiting for my book, while my book was on submission, who basically said like, you only get one debut, so if we don't do it right, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it was, it was very pressurizing for me because I was like, oh shit, if I publish this one book and this book does not do well, and it's a short story collection, right. okay? So we already know like what the, what the bias is on that. I was like, oh, and then I'm done and then I can never do anything again. And then the editor that I ended up going with was like, that's not true at all. You debut many times in different mm-hmm. genres and one book doesn't, you know, one book can have such a long life. Like even if like yeah. in the first like few years, years, nothing happens. And then that book gets picked up after you've written these other books. We think of writing as a long literary career instead of like, oh, it's the debut Mm -hmm, or nothing. mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And so I think, I think that's something that I I would like to say to people. Don't put so much pressure on the debut. There will be more. Mm -hmm. I feel like it's two, there are two sides to that, which is don't rush your debut, but it's not because, well, you only get one chance. You shouldn't rush it just because your writing should never be rushed. Right. No, absolutely. Uh, You're exactly right. So the flip side of that is feeling like you have to put the book out right now. We've seen, especially lately, um, there was some all kind of hullabaloo in the, in the social medias about, you know, people feeling like, they've published their first books before they were mm-hmm. ready because, oh, the timing, I have to do it. I'm on somebody else's mm-hmm. timeline for my project. And so the project doesn't get the time and space that it needs to actually develop into itself. And it's taken at a younger iteration and then put it on the stands. And then everyone's like, oh, this sucks. And it's like, well, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like this person was probably getting a lot of different kind of conflicting advice about like what to do with their work when it wasn't really ready. Well, would it, will it really need it was patience and time and, and the people around them to protect that time and space and be like, hey, it doesn't matter if you publish this this year or in like five years, just like do the work that you think you need to be Mm -hmm. doing on it. Love that. So let's maybe back up a little bit um, to before all this success was happening for you. I'm curious about your first ever short fiction publication. 
Yes. The year, um, what story it was, how it felt to get that acceptance letter. We always like to ask writers this because it's so inspiring to hear other writers talk about that moment and that moment of sort of understanding that you can work hard and you can do this. Yeah. So that's so the very, very, very first thing I ever got published was in my undergraduate literary journal, the Kudzu Review at Florida State University. And Florida so that State. was yes, Florida State. <laughs> and and you know, so I was like, oh, that was really cool. But in terms of like this collection and like me being like, I'm gonna be like a, a writer. Apogee Journal published my very first story. They published an almanac of bones. And it was at a time where um, I had sent that story out to so many places and it was like, oh, nose, 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 you know, just nobody wanted it. So I was like, okay. And then Apogee Journal was like, yes, we would love to have it. We want to work on it with you. And I got $40 for that. And I was like, this is my first paid acceptance at $40 for me at that time. I was like, oh yes, I'm getting $40 yeah. for this story. And it didn't publish my story Aww. actually was, was my, uh, was my editor. And so, um, wonderful. Yeah. And so it was just like a beautiful little experience. So now every time I see her, I'm just like, yes, then hey, publish you the yeah. first story in my collection. <laughs> uh, <laughs> for wait, Apogee Disha, journal. <laughs> Disha, were we not in the same journal? I'm pretty sure we were in the same Issue journal. Issue number nine. Yes. Issue number nine. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> listen, uh, listen. Uh, that, was, that was fake. Yes. Listen, the way I'm telling you, the synchronicities and stuff that you mm-hmm. look back in. So, yeah, issue number nine was my first ever published story in Apogee Journal. Had the little blue cover with like the chalk writing. Yes, That's what the we're talking little, about, yeah, right? Yeah, yes. that was absolutely Amazing. it. And then, you know, just a shout out to her, uh, who I think we're going to have yes. on the podcast. And, you know, um, the editing experience makes such a difference. And I don't think we talk enough about our editing experience, yes. like the positive. Like we know what what's not good. But um, literally, I was on the phone with Den both of us in the Google Docs at the same time because the ending was not working for Eula and it it was going to the printers that day. And I'm sitting there typing and deleting and, ty- and knowing that Den is watching me <laughs> and I had never written like that. But I was like, I, I, I know what you mean because we were at that, like something's just not working here at the end and neither of us could, you know, it was like on the tip of our tongues or fingertips, I guess. And then I, when I wrote what is currently the ending, I remember Dan just saying yes, and we knew that that was it. And that was just oh, such yes. a magical experience with an editor. And so, like, my bar is really high now for editors. Like, you've got to yes. be a Dan, <laughs> you know? I agree with you. I think more, more focus on, like, what does it look to have – like a positive experience with an editor because a good editor who understands what you want for your work, it can help you better get there, can take your work to the next level. It's like, that's how I felt about my editing experience with my editor, Katie Racian, um, on Milk Blood Heat was just like, oh yeah, this is exactly what I wanted to move toward. And like us being in collaboration Mm -hmm. together is what helped to get there. That's what it is. It's a collaboration. It's a conversation between you and this other person about how to take the work to your highest intentions. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's something that should always be celebrated. And is really sometimes like rare, magical to find. And I think circling back to, you know, the MFA experience, I think what some folks have shared 
coming out of those experiences is that if the experience has been traumatic and if it hasn't been the kind of workshop where getting feedback and critique was something that made you want to rush back into your work and explore those possibilities, Mm -hmm. then it makes it difficult to work with editors because you're defensive and you're traumatized, you know? And so, but if that's all, you know, and you don't realize that's not how it should have been, you know, and so, you know, hopefully through conversations like this, it encourages writers to to know that, you know, critique and editing experiences, you might be feeling a little tender, but they shouldn't hurt. Yeah, they shouldn't hurt. And it right. should, yeah, and you should have the time and the space to be like, OK, what stuff, what suggestions resonate and what doesn't and take what you need and leave the rest. And that should be a safe space to do that mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Love that. Now let's talk about other short story collections that you've loved. Do you have a favorite or any that you've been a particular fan of lately? I was ready for y'all. Uh, <laughs> I wrote this down. Um, yeah. So I, I've been shying away from the word favorite recently, just because I'm like that for me implies some sort of like, I have to choose this one or this couple of things when really it's like, whatever's the next thing that mm-hmm. really resonates or strikes me as something that I've been really into. But I wrote down three, two of these I'm teaching this year. So obviously we have the office of mm-hmm. historical corrections. Yes. Yes. Danielle Evans. Danielle. Honestly, take a class on structure and theme and form. It's like mm-hmm. so brilliant. And um, propulsion, uh, which uh, I think she does mm-hmm. so well. Yeah. A genius. Danielle is a whole genius. She knows that. So there's that. Then there's the dangers of smoking in bed by Mariana Enriquez. It's in a uh, collection and translation. Mm. So this is a, a, a writer from Buenos Aires. The stories in there are, like dark and really emotional and really just I've I've been really trying to read more translations because I'm like there's more that's going Mm -hmm. on outside of the United States and I want my students to read widely too and then the last one that I have on here is Miniware by Morgan Thomas which is another short story collection that's kind of um grappling with place so it's like really it's got a lot of the south in there new orleans is in there a lot some florida and then like also um trans and non-binary identity so those are the story collections that i've that have really been kind of in my mind since i've read them fantastic i'm adding those last two to my list they were not on my radar So I'm curious about where a story typically starts for you mm-hmm. and how you know you've reached the end. This is a question I ask writers all the time because this is where I struggle with short fiction, especially the endings part. Yeah. So, yeah. So endings come to me first, mm. usually. Oh, yeah. interesting. Um, I don't know why that is. It's just the way that, it, like, in true to form, like, for everything, like, even when I was ordering the short story collection, like, what stories are going where, like, I knew what story was going to be the last story, and it was, like, trying to figure out mm-hmm. everything else. So I don't know why that's that way. That's just where it is. And so for me, I usually know where the end is. And then the next thing that comes is like, okay, where I'm starting. And then it's like, I'm writing my way to connect the two, mm-hmm. um, ah. kind of like that. And so like, even before the ending comes though, like I said, usually for me, a seed it will be like conversation I overheard, or I'm watching a movie and a question comes to me like, why do people do that? Or like, what would it be like if people like did this one thing and this, you know, I don't know, whatever. So it's like an idea, sometimes an image. 
Yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask if the ending comes to you as an image or as more of like a, like an emotion that, you know, an emotional note that, you know, you want to end on either. Sometimes it's, sometimes it's one or the other. Sometimes it's both. But like, I think that's why for me, I think I do really good endings. Like, you know, I know some people are like, these are unresolved stories. And I'm like, no, they just require you to do a little bit of the work as the reader to imagine like what these characters lives are like past the story. You know what I mean? Past the last line. Um, yeah. yeah. And for the stories in Milk, Blood, Heat, what did you have a particular philosophy in terms of what order you placed them in? No, girl, that was like totally not a thing that I knew. Like, I was like, uh, I don't know what the order is going to be, except for, like I said, I knew that I wanted to end on an almanac of bones because I think that that last sentence is hopeful mm-hmm. for me. I think that it, it implies a lot of like faith and like growing into yourself, even if what yourself looks like is unacceptable to the people mm-hmm. around you. Um, so I knew I wanted to end there, but otherwise I was kind of like, I don't know how to order, order mm-hmm. a story. And my editor and my agent were both super mm-hmm. helpful, um, in, in helping me figure that out. So, cause really I was like, I want to just start with outside the raft and everybody was kind of like, I don't know. I mean, it's a good story. It's a little quiet. And I was like, you think that story is quiet? I don't. And then, um, you know, my editor suggested starting with milk, blood, heat. And I was kind of like, can you do that? That story's So <laughs> like, can we start like with yes, that strong of a note? Absolutely. She was like, why not? Mm-hmm. And so after we had the first one in place and the last one in place, then everything kind of took on more of a natural resonance. Like for example, so milk, blood, heat, And you know how that story ends. And then it goes into feast. Um, And then feast goes into tongues, which is dealing with, you know, religion and and the nature of God. And then that goes into the Mm -hmm. loss of heaven and Mm -hmm. so on and so forth. So then it became a lot more um, Mm -hmm. just organic. And do you have any writing rituals? Like, do you have to set up your space a certain way or? Yes, ma'am. I am not surprised. (laughs) I can't wait to hear. Let's hear it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, yeah. So like, I'm not a person who drinks coffee, like in my day to day, like I'm not one of those people that like wakes up and I have to start the coffee pot, but I do have to have coffee or tea when I write. It's just a part of like my brain being like, mm-hmm. okay, we're going into work mode. So I, I light my little candle that I have. I make my, my coffee or my tea or whatever I'm making. Um, I put on my noise canceling headphones and I like to work in coffee shops, but because of the pandemic made that really hard. I learned to write in my apartment or in my office that I have this space (laughs) for that I I didn't use that much. But like I put on like um, music that doesn't have any like lo-fi beats, just stuff without lyrics because I can't do lyrics, but like Mm. I think music helps me. Um, Mm -hmm. and then I listen to like, I don't know if they're real, but like, it's like the theta waves or the beta waves or whatever that are supposed to help with concentration. I put those on and some like water sounds and then I'm, then I'm set. But yeah, I kind of have to have my like little, at least the coffee, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? And the, in my, in my music and stuff. So I can be like, okay, I'm in my space. I'm writing. Awesome. And what do you, now that the book has been out in the world for some time now, um, what do you wish you could go back and say to pre-publication you about the process? You don't have to say yes Mm. to everything. Mm. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) Um, I think that, you know, 
getting, getting to publish a book, especially if that's something that you've wanted for like most of your life or for a really long time or a goal you set yourself, it can be really easy. I think to just fall into this mode of being so grateful. Like it's good to have to hold gratitude. Um, but I think you can fall into this mode of being so grateful that you just want to be like, Oh yes. Anybody cares about like giving me some time. So yes, 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 yes. I want to say yes to this. I want to say yes to this. And you start saying yes to so many other people that you begin to Mm. say no to yourself in terms of like your own self care, um, things that you need in order to actually be a functioning person in the world. And that's the mm-hmm. other thing is that writers spend so much time in their in their mind and their intellect that I think sometimes we forget that we have bodies and that our bodies need things for us to mm-hmm. to function. So that because both of those things go together. So I think yeah, I think I would just tell myself like it's okay to say no to things, and it's okay to say yes to the things that like you actually want to do. And that you feel like, oh, I'm, I'm going to be giving in this particular area. But like, you can't say yes to everything without burning mm-hmm. your own self out. Mm-hmm. And sort of ending on an, a note of craft. So fill in the blank. The hardest part of writing a short story is starting. <laughs> <laughs> I wish it was a different answer, but it just is. Like for me, I have such a resistance to starting things because. I think for me, it's, it's a little bit of perfectionism. You know, I have this idea and it, and it unfurls in my head in this incredibly vivid way. And I mm-hmm. think my fear is always, I am never going to get it on the page the way it exists in my brain. And, and I think, yeah. I think most of the time, I don't know if I ever fully do it, but I've gotten close and the closest I can get. And that's when I have to kind of be like, okay, you've gotten pretty close. You've done a good job. Now step back. And now you need to work on the next thing. Yeah. I think for me too, what happens is I get really like loyal to the idea I have in my head and forget to make room for the way that when you start writing the idea morphs and changes. The exploration of it. I think that's the same reason why I don't usually like to make an outline for myself. Like I need like Mm -hmm. little stepping stones because I think it like helps my brain to feel like I check something off. Like I get a little dark, like "Ah, check, 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 check. Like it feels like I'm moving, but But like to have an outline just all the way out makes me feel really claustrophobic and like there's no room to do anything outside of what I wrote down. Yeah. It's that feeling of thinking you're interested in one thing, but actually being interested in a different aspect of it and making room for that. Exactly. It's something that I'm learning to do. You know, trusting for me, it's such an act of trust, trusting myself, trusting the process that if I just keep going, that aha is going to happen, you know? Mm-hmm. I think so. I th- our writing is not static and neither is our process. So it's like, allow yourself to have the space to be surprised about like whatever it is that you're curious about mm-hmm. or whatever you're writing toward. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I'm with you on that. Yeah. My favorite part of writing a short story is when I have given it to somebody who lives outside of my head and they understood what I was doing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think there's that's not the much thing. better than that. No. Beautiful. Disha, did you have any other? No, I'm just sitting questions? here with the biggest smile on my face right now. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you just for so, you know, just so many insights. And this is not our first conversation, but there's still so much, you know, that you shared that is just encouraging to me and and that I'm excited for our listeners to hear because, um, you know, I think the three of us sort of represent um, so much that people aren't told about how publishing can Mm. be. 
and how writing can mm-hmm. be. Um, mm-hmm. And there's so much, we didn't use the word joy, um, Dantiel, as we were talking, but listening to you talk about process and how stories come together for you and working at the, the sentence level, um, all of that just is, so, there's so much pleasure in the writing. And, and, yes. and you remind us that writing is pleasurable. It is. You have to remember that it's for you and that you enjoy doing it. Otherwise, why do yes. it? Because it's too hard. Exactly. <laughs> like, exactly. And I always am constantly learning from y'all. So like, it's always a pleasure. So we got to figure out when's the next time we all get together for a little 3Ds reunion. Thank you again, Don Teal, for being here today. It was such a thrill to have you on the show. Thanks, y'all. And thanks, everybody, for joining us. If you like what we're doing at URSA, be sure to share this podcast with your friends. And if you'd like to support us directly, become an URSA member by going to ursastory.com slash join. You'll help fund production of this show and keep us going. We'll see you next time.